0: Today, Mr. Dave Taylor is gracing us with his presence. He's a, um, one of the world's most prominent bass trombonists and one of the first few known as a jazz bass trombonist. He's a faculty at Manhattan's music, Manhattan School of Music, I'm sorry, one of the only schools in the country and the world that holds a faculty position for jazz bass trombone. All of this makes sense considering his long resume of work with groups such as Stochevsky, American Symphony Orchestra, the New York Philharmonic out of Pierre Boulez, The Thad Jones-Mel Lewis Orchestra, also known as Van Card Jazz Orchestra. He's recorded with Duke Ellington for the New Orleans Suite, Gil Evans, uh, George Russell, George Grunt's Concert Jazz Band, Chuck Israel, The Rolling Stones, Barbara Streisand, Miles Davis, Quincy Jones, Frank Sinatra, Aretha Franklin, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and there's plenty more. He also has done extensive work as a soloist, appearing as a soloist at the St. Luke's Chamber Orchestra, the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, the Caramore Festival Orchestra, the New York Chamber Symphony, the Basel Sinfonietta, the Adelaide Philharmonic, and the Group for Contemporary Music, among others.
1: Yeah, and not only is he a prominent voice in bass trombone, but also as a composer. He's been involved in dozens of commissioning projects for the bass trombone in solo and chamber idioms. Uh, You can find out more about his collaborations with composers and his discography on his website. Um, We're also going to be showing and discussing excerpts of specific pieces during the stream. And his website is davetaylor.net, and you can find out information about his expansive resume and by his records as well as listen to them on spotify youtube and apple music let's get started with this first excerpt so we're starting with bass on standard rep everybody knows this sub-zero <clears throat> third movement so let's uh let's have a listen <laughs>
2: i go i
1: Sensational
0: playing. That's right. Yeah. So uh did you like yeah. So I guess one thing that came right to mind of the questions that we have a bunch <laughs> of questions written out for you today. But um the first thing that okay. came to mind is like just the playing is, is so virtuosic and you 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 make it seem like every like technical passage or easy passage just sounds effortless. So is Thanks. there any any chance you could talk just a little bit about your mindset? when you're playing something that shouldn't be possible on the bass trombone.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think anything's impossible playing a bass trombone, uh, but I, I really, I developed the technique uh, when I was in my early twenties, um, because I was an orchestral player mainly um, while I was a Juilliard, and then just ventured into the, uh, that's a whole story, into the jazz scene. I had to change my articulation. So uh, yeah. by the time I was in my mid twenties, I only had two spots on my, In my mouth that I put my
2: tongue.
3: Mm. I practice that way all the time. It's either either on the top teeth, you know, back of the top teeth, meaty part, or I don't ever let my tongue go through my lips. I let it drop down just to hit the top lip. And that's everything I do. So everything I do is either like a soft legato or a hard legato or um, every now and then if I have to like a marcato thing. But Mm. I just apply that and practice, you know.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I Absolutely.
3: practice scales like a couple hours every day. You know.
1: Oh, nice. Can you talk about a little bit about your work with Daniel Schneider? Because you have yeah. like, this is not the only piece that oh, you guys no. have done.
3: Uh, Daniel, we've done five to seven CDs together. He's written me a whole, uh, he's written me a sonata, two concerto, two concerti. He's written me a whole uh, duo repertoire and that's all recorded. That's online too. And uh, we met, um, he's Swiss. And I used to play in a band called the George Gruntz Band. And he heard me playing in Zurich, me playing in an airplane, and I I was doing, George would write these whole um, epic pieces for me to improvise on and to invent poetry and stuff like that. And uh, Daniel came up to me the next day at a restaurant, we were sitting out drinking at a restaurant. And usually I push guys away like that but for some reason I didn't push him away. And he said, hey look, um, why don't we get together and play, I'm moving to New York. I'd love to start a trio with you. And we did. We, Kenny Drew Jr., the great pianist, Kenny Drew Jr., and Daniel and I, and so we developed a whole trio repertoire. And uh, then we became very, very good friends. So I, I know with him for 30 years. We know each other's families and stuff like that. So it's just, wow. you
2: know, yeah.
3: and he, he trusted me, and and we um, have a compatibility because we both are multi-genre, genre old, and. Um, and we apply that to all the playing. It's kind of it's it's kind of um, using uh, I hate the word jazz and classical, but it, it's um, it's it's improvisatory technique combined with through composed technique, and we treat time like it's a children's playground. You know what I mean? It's not like, not like it's not yeah. that, you know. And then my first when I started playing in Thad Jones Bad Man, I mean, that was my first introduction into non-metric big band time. Really, uh, this was a self-contained group, and they had been together a long, long time by the time I joined. That was in the early '70s, and I remember one anecdotal story, man. When we were in Barcelona, Barcelona, and and I went, I left the gig crying. We were playing on Willow Weep for Me. I literally left the gig crying, man, because you know I was so self-confident about various things, and I couldn't play four-four time the way that band was playing four-four time because it was idiosyncratic. Yeah, so I started I started checking that out real early, and Daniel and I both applied that and blah blah blah.
0: That's amazing. I didn't I never thought about how you can use the influence of you're saying Thad Jones really influenced the way that you. Oh, perform. Thad Jones.
3: As far as I'm concerned, I was playing at the New York Philharmonic at the same time I was playing with Thad Jones. Wow. Pierre Boulez. Pierre Boulez was it to me because he had a small group a counter series at Cooper Union in Manhattan. And then, when he needed a sub because my teacher was sick for a long period of time, I became the guy. So, I was playing in Thad's band at the same time as, as the orchestra. And then I started playing with the Lincoln Center Chamber Music Society. And I think it was directly as a result of playing in Thad's band and recording with Duke because those cats played across the bar. Mm. You know, we had a rhythm section laying it down, especially another with that pocket. And, but you have very, and, and as improvisers, as you know, we don't play metrically, you know, we'd be yeah. kind of floating over the thing that's classical chamber music and in fact the most um, the, the closest thing to the improvisers that we know now in the 20th and 21st century were the renaissance musicians because those cats played without out bar lines and they were blowing off the tunes of the day yeah this is really not like a new thing this is like a you know universal continuum
0: man uh, you know. yeah that's amazing oh we have a quick question here from the live stream Xavier Gonzalez says, "If you can, can you ask when the CD of him in a brass quintet playing all Ewald is coming out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um
3: Chris comer, French rock player, Jim Albrecht, mark Gould, Chris Gecker, and I recorded all the ewald court, uh, quintets about eight years ago, and we just Hemming and, and you know arguing. <laughs> Gould and I've been arguing with each other for forty years, you know, so
0: yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> it, it, it's coming out soon. Don't hold your breath, but it's coming out. Better <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> well, since you're talking about your jazz influence on this, the Schneider piece, and how you think of it all, I think this is a great, like, Way going into um, your most recent album, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the Dave Taylor plays the music of Dave Taylor, right? That's the Dave most recent. Dave
3: Taylor plays the music of David Taylor.
1: Right? Yes, David Taylor plays the music of David Taylor. So we have
3: no, no. Dave, Dave
0: Taylor, Dave? Taylor right?
1: my bad, my bad, my bad. We have you on, on uh iTunes. Cause this is a record that's not on uh it's not necessarily on streaming platform. Yeah, so you have to buy I it have, to listen have, to it. I have no clue. I have no clue. <laughs> All <laughs>
0: right, so
1: this is um, concoctination. So, so this is right? concoctination. This is you track wanna, two.
3: You want a story about that or no?
1: Yeah, actually that would be great. Yes.
3: Yeah. Okay. So um, that piece, is called too sweet t-o-o-o-s-u-i-t too sweet and and it's each movement each of the five movements is based on um the words from the poem that created franz schubert's song Die Nebensonnen. but the concatenation movement is an improvisatory move it's it's about a bipolar personality because the nebenson is about a guy contemplating suicide we think and we have a lot of other reasons. The mock suns, that means there's three suns, and there is a scientific actually um, word for three, that some kind of illusion, prismatic illusion, that the sun mm-hmm. appears as three distinct things. But the lyrics here are, um, are ambiguous and I've interpreted, and many other people have interpreted it that way. And um, so uh, the opening movement of the five movement piece is called Him, that presents the situation. The second movement, the improvisatory movement, is his descent into madness. Mm. And the third movement, which you'll probably play later, called dance, is because bipolar people don't just go like this. They go up and down. The third movement is is the dance, his elation. The fourth movement is me singing the neighbor's son. And the fifth movement is a blues based on he doesn't know what's going down. And it ends on an open fifth. You know, it's like... Which door is the lion behind? You know what I mean. You know that old Roman story about yeah, yeah, blah blah. So go ahead. Great. So talk about what I'm doing.
1: Uh, Here, let's play the track a little bit. Can you hear it?
0: Yep.
3: Changing volume. Yeah, I can okay. hear, but let it go for a second because I'm using electronics Um, tell us what yeah. you saying in the yeah. back. Say that again. Oh yes. Um, so I play in a band called.
2: Yes. Yeah.
3: And uh, the drummer is Kevin K.
2: And
3: uh, around is a piano player on this record, Mapele bass player. I just uh, I said to Kevin, man, go into the go into the studio. And let's just blow off each other. Yeah. See your playing the off. But he started going off talking about his mother, mommy, mommy, mommy. Kind of it's funny how old it was, but your head is in the right place. Somehow everything's kind started... of really when you think about the sense of madness and people being bipolar and stuff like that. A lot of that is developed in one's house growing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One's parents and with one's uh, of course it's biological but it's also um, environmental, you know? So, uh, but anyway, play what comes after that. That's the dance comes right after that. Just give them a smattering of that. So they understand that this doesn't go, it it kind of does follow quickly into it. Okay.
1: So this is the dance. Right. over several pieces that we're going to talk about today. You just have, like,
2: right.
3: such magnificent facility. Uh, to me, it's just kind of a simplistic, uh, yeah, G minor.
0: With, with, with yeah. A third, you know, right yeah. Yeah, I hear that for sure.
3: I was very shocked when this, when this, I, I finished that in Alaska, actually. I was in of Alaska. It, this is like the first long-form piece I've ever written. It's, um that's well, not quite true. Yeah, I don't know. The first kind of through composed long form thing I, I'd written and I was very surprised how it came out. I was actually very happy with it. And um I started getting some nice mention in newspapers about it. That's what I try to do with my career, man. I, I I've always yeah. been, I I've never worried about the the college scene. You know, I, I wanted to play in front of real audiences all the time. So that that kind of
2: shaped uh shaped my yeah.
1: And before we get on to the next track, because when when I first listened to this, like the first time I listened through the record, um, I hadn't read the liner notes yet. So to me, it was like being kind of like uh, you, you play a lot with like, um, like sheets of sound kind of I, maybe is the word and just like a soundscape colors and different things. But if you go back and read the liner notes, you talk about like the tracks and what they mean and like it gives so much more meaning because you it's not just like the sound of it but it the intent and how you want like someone to feel at least that's how I've received it I was you were talking about like anxiety and stress and I I I definitely felt that when I got to like
2: right
3: second track and I was
1: like you know and it wasn't it was it was like a feeling of discomfort
3: yeah I'm not about happy talk all the time (laughs) (laughs) you know uh, but that it, it's interesting that you mentioned that, because in a, in a piece I just played that, that's getting a lot of action, I call it Houdini's Lament. I premiered the piece three times uh, at a place called Barge Music. I premiere a lot of my music there. And um, I didn't use the words, although I had the poem. I didn't use the words. I did it as a straight instrumental piece. But at any rate, so I put words to it, and the piece was written for words, I discovered. I mean, I, I write a lot of things, and all of a sudden, the stuff comes to me. After I write the piece, or I'm halfway into the piece. I don't kind of like into sounds, you know. I saw a sea of faces looking upward from the street at a man who hung suspended from a rope that bound his feet. They were anxious. They were fearful. They were curious. They were glad. They were laughing. They were tearful. They were joyous. They were sad. (laughs)
2: depend 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 is, the <laughs>
3: High above them, he was swinging with a jacket round and tied. He was wriggling, he was twisting as he tried to get outside. (laughs)
0: is there any way towards the end of this? Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I noticed that's really cool about, about this piece in particular mm-hmm. that you just got into is that you're using the harmon sort of as a plunger. you yes, going I in do and out lot, with the I, I do that a lot actually. Um it's it's not easy on the bells, but
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It gets a really cool distinct sound. Yeah, but I'm using a good. wild buzzer mute at some point. Uh go back
2: yeah. Oh, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh,
3: the piece became um, he's up there in the straitjacket, Houdini. He was a great escape artist, and the poet is talking about how all the people in the crowd they're in jackets too, and we all try to get out of our straight jackets try to get outside our errors, try to get outside our vanity, and try to become free people. And that's a constant quest, you know? Now, when the critic reviewed it without the words, it kind of bugged me because the critic talked about how I was describing the complexity of Houdini's life, but really I wasn't. So that convinced me to put the words in because taking it from a in this to an out everyone was more important to me, you know. The piece is actually virtuosic in certain places. We didn't necessarily hit those places, but... Um, I think we the, hit some of them. Oh, okay. And and the buzzing mute, you'd be surprised how audiences love that. I mean, audiences just go wild over all the mutes. Um, when I, a, a fellow wrote a piece for me, a solo piece, where I'm improvising over a 100-piece orchestra on the... Richard Strauss' piece called Ein Helden He called it Uheld, and we did it in Austria a lot, but then the Strauss Foundation came down on us. But I had, um, I had electronics going on around me. I had the Vienna Philharmonic Trombone Quartet accompanying me on the side, the 100-piece orchestra. And when you play in front of a symphony orchestra, a lot of times you're not you're the trombone player, you know, that kind of a thing. So what I do is I, I nail the concertmaster right away at the beginning of rehearsal. I put a harmon stem in, it and I try to play a duo with the concert master, and I berate him for playing too loud for the bass trombone. But we're at Harmon Stem in, that's very quiet, you know? Yeah. Uh, but you'd be surprised how audiences respond to that. It's a very sexy thing. After you're blowing your brains, out, and all of a sudden, this very low
2: ooh, ooh,
3: sound comes in, very dramatic, and audiences respond. I'm not saying I write for audiences to respond, but I'm certainly aware that as artists, we are representatives of our generation. Yeah, We really don't want to leave the audience out of the picture. We don't mm-hmm. want to pander to them, but we don't want to, um, we're aware of drama. Mm-hmm. No.
1: We have a comment from Jen that she says that um, you create some mutes yourself.
3: Oh, hey, Jen. Uh, yes, I do, actually. And even the Harmon Mutes, I, I'm not going to tell you all the secrets, but the Harmon <laughs> Mutes, I, I modify the Harmon Mutes. Um, I find special plungers that are really big. My wife and I were on vacation in Paris once at a fancy hotel. And I happened to see a porter running to somebody's room to kind of clean out the plumbing. And all I could think of was when I saw that plunger, I ran after this porter in the swanky hotel. And I found out where he got the plunger from. And we made an excursion in Paris to get the plunger. Uh, buzzer mutes. I make my own buzzer mutes. Um, if you want to play Thecla after this little conversation, that would be cool, too. Um, I, I, I originally made the buzzing mute because uh, in my first record, Pastels, I do a Charles Ives song that he called The Indians. And it's about how the white man sailed through the West, killing all the Indian children. So I had to figure out a way to describe death. And um, so I used a string quartet and a harpsichord and me in this buzzing mute, very stark. And, but then after I started playing it for a while, people started responding to it. it was like, then destery kind of a funky sound you know what I mean a breathy yeah, yeah. breathy kind of a sound, so I started putting it into into everything uh, that I want to describe emotion And this next thing uh this is a Franz Schubert piece on this record, right, <laughs> and a uh, thecla is a woman who whose man has died, and they 're communicating to each other through the ether they 're going beyond the they 're going beyond death, their love is so strong so uh this is how i dealt with it
1: so we have this track is going to be a little bit loud so if you have headphones on or if you have like really loud speakers you might want to put it down a little bit
3: and it's again a buzzing mute That's a great Washington trombone ensemble. I mean that's uh, they're fantastic and uh, led by Chris Branigan and uh, what I heard there was an Ave Maria. This is Franz Schubert. I heard an Ave Maria and I had to figure out a way to get surreal with the thing (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I had to figure out a way to deal with the melody you know. So uh, I, I I'm not playing any non melody notes. I'm not singing any non melody notes. I just had to figure out a way to you know, I married fifty two years to a woman I love very deeply. So you you know you, you think of all these personal relationships and um, and you kind of imagine, Oh god yeah. damn, what's that gonna be like if God forbid? You know, that kind of thing. And yeah. you wanna that communication going and you know. But uh g- can you go through the first track, Hertz, for a second? Play that for a minute. So here, a guy made a track from based on my sounds, and everything that you There's can see There's a hear hear of, of faces of and bloods, comes to a child and touches it, comes to a child and touches it, it comes like a bird never seen goes like a bird never handled. They're a little mother. Hear the bird, hear the bird, hear the bird, hear the bird. They're a little mother. Hear the bird, hear the bird, hear the bird, hear the bird. It's a lock of faces who Come to a child and touches it. It comes like a bird never seen. Never seen. Never seen. Never see, Goats like a bird, never hand
2: Mother, Okay, now.
3: The very last character number two at the end of the record, it's the same track. The guy took my sounds and just made a soundscape out of it. So everything I did over it was improvised, except the words were from Carl Sandberg,
2: hmm.
3: great American poet from the early part of the 20th century. And this is how I handled it on the outside. And after I heard it, it kind of sounds like um Tony Bennett to me.
2: I love
3: said a great mother
2: i love you for
3: what you are and i
2: love you
3: more yet child deeper yet than ever child for what you are going to be yonder fall yet Yonder and far over yet, ahead and beyond, yonder and far over yet, deeper than ever, child. Knowing so well you are going far, knowing your great works are ahead. Yonder and far over yet,
2: yonder
0: and far over yet.
2: Ahead.
3: far over yet. Basically, um, two weeks after nine eleven, I had to meet Daniel Schneider in Zurich for a gig. And uh, so I, I used to double book myself because I couldn't afford to play concerts and stuff of, of my music without having a gig to back it up. You know, people weren't paying me, that kind of stuff like that. So, but I did, uh, was able to book a record. I get paid for all the records I did except for the last one or two. So I, book- I double booked on the way to Daniel Schnee's gig. I booked a recording session of a solo album, Me Unaccompanied, of this, which this was part. that I used it on this next record. I got permission, of course. Um, but I recorded a whole CD in one evening. And this was part of that thing. Um, I knew I wanted to use a Carl Sandburg tune because he's dealing with mothers and children and birds on fire. So the whole record was a, really, that whole record, Hymns Hums, Hiss, and hertz was a whole dedication to uh, the firemen. But I don't want to talk about my politics on my CDs because if people get involved in hearing what your politics are on your CDs, they listen for the politics. Mm -hmm. I'd rather they hear the music, groove on the music, whatever the hell, and then... All right, if you want to get the background, fine, you know. So um, this was part of it. So what I do is I, I have one microphone overhead, one microphone in front, and I have my mute stand next to me. And I'm either singing up or playing down, singing up playing down. And, that, and that's how I, I I don't overdub those things, you know. So it's a lot of fun for me to do it, you know. So I did the whole CD. is an hour CD in one evening. And then we kind of mixed it the next morning, and I headed off to Zurich you know, and and uh, this was about 2001, I, I think, thought was 2001, so, and then usually I forget what I do when I move and go on to the next thing, you know, yeah. and nobody really, you know, I shouldn't be so self-deprecatory, but nobody really buys this stuff, you know, uh, but I, I kind of love doing it, and and because I was kind of well-known in the studios and the freelance thing, I always had finances coming in, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I had total, free, although I did get paid quite a bit of sum for for so that one but when I do these aesthetic projects, you know, for me, it's a, it's a whole thing. My whole career was really kind of based on who loved me the most, you know, it's like, when I came out of Juilliard, I mean, uh, I was playing both in, in big bands and, and in uh, I actually had a gig, a steady orchestra gig with Leopold Stokowski at Carnegie Hall while I was going to Juilliard last year. So when I got to Juilliard, I couldn't read music very well. I was a tuba player in in, um, in junior high school and high school. But my mother couldn't get me home with the tuba because we lived far away, so my kid brother played the trombone. So when, when I was senior in high school, I took up trombone. And when I got to Juilliard, I really couldn't read that well. They wouldn't let me in any chamber music classes or orchestras or anything. They wouldn't even let me into a theory class because I had to take rudimentary theory. But I guess they liked my sound. And I think back in the day, it was a little looser how you got into school, you know. So that was really a boon because what I had to do is I went out on the street and I, and I I, couldn't I couldn't do any things in school. So um I did all the community orchestras and all the big bands. You know, I never thought about jazz or classical music, you know. So um so I was networking while I was going to school. I didn't even know I was networking, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I recommend that to everybody, incidentally, because those who stay in the building will stay in the building, you know. So I just went where I was loved some years. It was more classical music. Some years it was more jazz music. I hate those terms, but some years it was more that. Some years it was more this. Um, I was never smart enough to develop a kind of a style. At first, in the big bands, my style was my sound. I want to be heard. That's my style. I want to be heard. And I want to be heard in time, you know that kind of thing. And that's why I studied articulation. Remember, I told you I came up with the system uh, mm-hmm. uh, because um, you want to be. If, if you're not, if you're not in tune and you don't sound good, and you're not in time, you can't play loud. <laughs> you, yeah, you better, <laughs> you better. Be <laughs> yeah. And, and anyway, you know, so that that went on like that. But then when I started playing with bands like Thad Jones and, and i recorded with Duke, man, that was an experience sitting in the room. Harry Carney and those cats, man. Woo, that was out. But, but, so then, and then, I, I, and then uh, when I started playing in Bob Minzer's band, you know, the great, great artist, Bob Minzer. Um, Michael Brecker introduced me to, to, to Bob Minster. Ch- saxophone players and trumpet players were always my help, you know. I had developed a style, you know, you could kind of play loudly in a big band if you don't use too hard on articulation. If, if you're using a kind, of a kind of a semi-legato or legato articulation, you're playing a little too loud, you don't sound... Um, whacked out with the section. You can kind of float in more with the section, you know? So I guess that's how my big man style kind of developed. You had a question about what was the difference
0: playing in Thad Jones and Michelle Camillo? And, 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 yeah, just and, how you how you conceptualize playing in different bands. Or if you do, or if you just play them all the same.
3: No, 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 no. You don't play all the same. Some of the big bands you have to use with a faster air. Hmm.
2: Your,
0: your, your air has to go faster.
3: Your mouth cavity has to be small. See, I have a whole technique based on my... All I think about when I practice is my diaphragm support and where my tongue is.
2: Mm.
3: And, um, and, and over the last 30 years, more about aperture, and I think of embouchure as just the shelf that aperture hangs on, you know? You make minuscule changes in pitch, tone. Man, I tell you, when I discovered uh, aperture, that's when Bill Watrous and I really got friendly because we were having a conversation in the back of a bus in Japan and and we kind of liked each other but we never really tight. But we became tight after this conversation because his whole thing is based on aperture. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and I used to see him walking down the street uh, back in the day but he'd just be buzzing his mouth all the time. <laughs> you know, trying to match up back then. And I said, Jesus, why the hell? Why the heck are you uh, doing that? I would think to myself. And then I discovered why, because aperture is the whole game, aperture diaphragm yeah. is the whole game. How, how did I get to that? You're talking about playing in big bands, right? Different kinds of big bands. So, like in, in a band like in a band like Michelle to you're gonna be man like yeah. Thad. You know, you kinda, you, you kind of more in the float. thing. also Thad also write, wrote with more like ninths and stuff like that on the bottom. Yeah. dad wasn't a root five guy at the bottom you know what i mean but some of the guys are root five guys like like when i'm playing in bob's band a lot of times it's doubling bass parts you know so it, it won't get into that extravagant harmonic situation yeah. so yeah, it'd be yeah. different when you're playing that when you're playing you know and uh my recommendation to bass drum boom players in big band is take it as far as you want because if you take it too far the boss will tell you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the boss will back you off I, actually, I, I was fired from a lot of orchestras but I have not been fired from any big fans and, and the reason I got fired from orchestras is because I always put my studio scene first and would take off from rehearsals and mm. after a while they get a little bent on that you know yeah. they said, yeah, they, they, they're hiring you for five orchestra jobs a year so they own your career for those five orchestra jobs and I
0: said no Might matter if we hit you with another question
3: yeah man go but, ahead so
0: you've got Everybody's always asking about dependent versus independent. And I see you've got an Edwards with dependent Thayer valves behind you, right? That's correct. So what sort of fueled that decision?
3: Well, I mean, I had always put, uh, you know, uh, the double trigger started coming around in the 50s with guys like Louis Van Haney and um, C- Edward Kleinhammer and uh, Alan Ostrander. But it never really took off. But then it started, and then um, it started taking off in the early 60s. And my first horn was a Holton bass trombone that had a, an F valve that had a valve on it, a second valve on it that you could pull out, and have a single valve instrument. Mm-hmm. But I always left the double valve on. Double valve um, horn, and that was dependent. Uh, double valve horns came into contact, really came into the scene in the mid sixties and it ex- exponentially um, grew the instrument, you know, it became totally chromatic, you know? So as long as yeah. I have a low B and I'm chromatic, I don't care what I'm playing on, you know, but it's like yeah. Uh, the dependent, let me show you what uh, so this is called the gooseneck, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have that. No. You don't have that. No. No independent valve <SS/Sawson> yeah. system has that. This is like turbo. This is a Maseratsky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is um so uh that really that really throws the sound out pretty good. Yeah. And I have options of color because if I if I want if I want a, a deeper wider sound I use both triggers down. If I want to just pump it out, I have that single trigger down with the Thayer valves, man. Uh, the Edwards Company, man, they've been so fucking oh, they've been so wonderful to me. They've been so friggin' wonderful to me. They give me all kinds of leeway, you know, and they send me all this equipment. Uh, but so I have Thayer valves, right? Yeah. And uh, so with Thayer valves, the air doesn't come, go in a circle, rotary. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah.
3: Air goes like an 11 or 15 degree angle through the valve. So in essence, when I have, when I'm not playing low notes, I'm playing through an open bass trombone. Yeah. You suckers are never playing through an
2: open bass. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. The, the double, the independent stuff is so advanced now i don't i don't know if it makes any sense at all but to me i love moving the slide in the sixth position hmm. uh, you can't still move past three what do you go to four you guys go to fourth position
0: <laughs> no i use six and seven it. it just depends on what
3: <laughs> it depends it on what get, year it is it gives me, i know it gives me color options it gives me um it's just fun to play man i don't play any horns that aren't fun to play i mean i'm i kind of hold i mean like even today, I mean, I, I was writing and everything, but I practiced a couple hours of scales, probably tonight. My head is a little spaced out with all of this business now. So yeah. I, I just play scales all day just to keep myself focused, you know? Mm. So tonight I'll put a practice unit, play another hour of scales, you know, that kind of thing just keeps me focused, keeps me chill. Um, and this virus hates strong lungs.
0: Yeah, Right. Yeah.
3: Give me some more questions and let, let me feel like I'm saying something. Okay.
1: <laughs> Since you're talking about practicing, could you go about uh, how you prepare for? Because you're t- every time you talk about there are some virtuosic sections like as if we haven't passed them. But when we get to the beginning, they're very like y- the, you have to have a lot of facility on the instrument, and and it doesn't seem like you even think about those kind of sections anymore. What, how have you approached? practicing the bass trombone and these pieces that you feel so I I
3: play the bass trombone I practice the bass trombone now the same way I've been doing it for literally 50 years I mean um I have four basic uh scale patterns that I play and I only practice major scales I mean I'll I'll do the modes when I'm you know yeah 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 but basically I'm playing major scales all the time and um and I and I always think of it just as breaking a long tone in fact, a lot of years I played out of the Schlossberg trumpet book. They're long tones and I only played long tones. And um, my warm ups are the same exercises as my exercises. And my warm ups, which are my exercises, are also my repair vehicles like um, there was a period of time I was playing in George Russell's band playing in the Philharmonic and working up a very difficult piece by a guy named Charles Warner and I just blew my chops out and I didn't know how the hell to get them back in so I just did my my warm-up scales very softly and I pulled it together you know and, and periodically everyone's gonna have to go through that was in 1984 or five uh, and um, but I, yeah so I've been practicing that same way um, when I'm practicing uh, music of any genre, uh, I don't play scales all day long, you know? Otherwise, you're, well, I have to tell you something, I'm still, you know, I, I think the, the, the lovely thing about being a lifer, you know what a lifer is,
1: right? Yeah.
3: Lifer is just somebody who wants to play this thing till the day they die. Okay, yeah. that's what I figured. And I'm a lifer. And the lovely thing about being as a, a lifer is you're constantly trying to grow. You know. So like for this concert I played, I played the concert at the American Trombone Workshop where I played that um, what do you call that? That Houdini thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I played like for an hour and change, man. I mean like I was just blowing some of the other companies and I don't feel it. You know. Um but what I did for that concert that I've done very rarely is I only warmed up ten to fifteen minutes. Wow. And then went out to blow. Because I, sometimes I get so nervous that I leave, I leave the shit in the practice room. Mm. You, know, you know, so I said, no, nah, no more of that. You know, okay. the nice thing about being my age is that certain things are kind of solidified now. Like about 10 years ago, I started taking two or three week vacations once a year. I love my wife i I go to Africa, we'll go to India, whatever. And then uh, I bring a mouthpiece with me and wow, that's impressive.
1: Yeah, I wanted to show this because this review talks about the record we were just listening to. So this is um, for "And If All Were Dark," which is where we were playing Thecla and Hertz, and I don't think we played the double tier yet.
3: Well, you sure you sure picked out stuff, huh?
1: Yeah. Well, it's a long about review, about so I say- wanted to kind of have the highlights. Say-
3: out stuff. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So I mean, this this review talks so much. Like, if you look in the bottom left corner, t- Taylor's virtuosic playing and skillful variations with a variety of mutes give him a wide ranging palette of sound. And then you have. Look, has restless vision as a soloist and composer.
3: But wait a minute, Um, what's the one on the right side? What is that one? (laughs) Taylor is genius. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that something, I mean, isn't that amazing? You know what I like about this review? It's not even about the review. It's that it appeared in a real magazine. Yeah, so that, that's kind of what the review's about. I mean, not even about the words. It's just yeah. about, we want, we want to get to the general public.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. You know, what magazine was this off the It's very file,
3: file Magazine. It's, file. it's a very high-end um, high music journal and equipment journal, music and, and equipment journal. So I, I was very happy about that when I saw that. Wow. You yeah, know. this
1: but is incredible.
3: We, basically, so my articulation and diaphragm thing covers me through all the work... Vir- just, you know, I got to practice, you know, but I I never worry about, I can't play that lick. Yeah. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It's just a matter of, I go slow, I work it up. I mean, some of the Charles Warner pieces I spent six months on. One of my students, uh, ex-students, Felix uh, Deltrellege, found online um, an arpeggio sonata I do with a piano at a live performance. And uh, that one took me two years. I mean, it's a whole piece. We just found the end of it. The whole concert got lost, but we found the end of it. Uh, that piece I spent two years on before I took it out into the into the public, you know, wow. and, uh, but I love it, man. I, a lot of people don't like practicing. i, I kind of love practicing, you know? it's like um, I yeah, love playing the bass trombone, man I mean uh, yeah, so when I was a Juilliard the first few years, I was a tenor trombone player, but then somebody said, "Hey, look, we can get you a gig. There was a place called the Leader Press. They had an orchestra, but you got and I had no money, so you got to play it on bass trombone. I said, I borrowed a, a con seventy h from the school. It was leaky and everything. But I kind of, I kind of dug it, and the guys at school, because since I was at the bottom of the totem pole, as soon as I picked up the bass trombone, all of a sudden they said, "Wow, Davey, you're wearing that's pretty good. That's that's kind of different." And it must have been my tuba playing, you know. So yeah. within six months, I was like playing like in shows and orchestras. It was like a, it was like a, it was an amazing thing that the bass trombone found me. This it's is a violin kind of, you know.
1: You don't know which concert it was from?
3: No,
2: it was from some concert. Skip ahead to the
3: skip ahead to the middle. Sensitivo, hey. Eh? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Of the piano, part. <laughs> <laughs> To make gradual, like, uh, timekeeps. Yeah. And they get to the really romantic piece, you know? And I'll say a little bit more about that in the All right, now skip a little bit ahead after the piano solo. Like a Trotish. I don't know if you know what a Trotish is. It's like a Hungarian, Slovakian dance. I'll tell you how I got to that.
3: i tell you, when I heard this back, I, I I kinda
2: was impressed by the soft play. You know what yeah. I mean?
1: And you you just go all over the range of the entire horn. That's like incredible to me. I
2: practice.
1: It's almost over. See it
3: to the
2: end. Let, let it run. Let it run. Mm-hmm.
3: So the story behind this is that the Impressiono you know, Sonata, um, that movement that you just heard is written for a violin. There's no way I was going to be able to play that. And I wanted the gig. So I had to come up with an alternative solution. So I researched Franz Schubert. I researched him and found out that he's not the clean old boy that we all thought he was he was well, he, we all know he died of a sexually transmitted disease right. very yeah. early on in his life but he was into everything guys girls uh, he was an alcohol he was drinking all the time he hung out in those in the funked out bars in vienna on the east side with the hungarians and the czechs he was known to be um he was known to be uh uh for his dances and his leader schubert leader so I said, okay, he kept researching, kept researching it. And then the guy who wrote, uh, the guy who commissioned the Arpeggio in the Sonata was an opium eater. He was into laudanum and all that. I mean, these cats were funky. Uh, now, Schubert didn't do that. We don't have any documentation of that, of course. So I put all of that together. And I said, well, oh, man, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... You know what I'm saying? So I turned it into an eastern, Eastern dance based on all of my... I wanted to do that in the first place, but I never come up with an interpretation that doesn't have some kind of thing that convinces me I'm being truthful to myself. You know, "To thine own self be true." That bullshit. Mm-hmm. Now, that was Othello instead of uh, that. From that was Shakespeare. "To thine own self be true." You want to bullshit the world? Fine. Just remember you're bullshitting. You know what I mean?
2: Mm.
3: Although you're allowed to lie in art, I try to get <laughs> as much as much logic and basis for my lives you know Mm -hmm. Uh, it's like when I hear bad intonation in improvisers I mean the whole thing that they're doing like is the half step whole step relationship whether it's in a mode or it's in a whatever the hell it is and if you're not going to play in tune you kind of like bust it out what what's the point of the half step whole step thing you know what I mean it's like so so that's why I put that kind of knowledge and I investigate my classical repertoire the same way I would, you know, like when I'm trying to figure out changes, something like that. Man, I find the common tonality, I look for what scales reach the ba, So I put that same kind of, I put that same kind of, into, oh shit, I'm going on and on. Give me a question so I don't run. <laughs>
0: <laughs> So, multiphonics is something that I know you're really yeah. good at. And um, said something- yeah, Go um,
3: that's it, very interesting. Um, I, I always knew they were there, and I, and of course, we all heard Albert Mangelsdorff and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I always knew that, but I didn't want to do it like those cats did. And when I'm in the practice room, I'm, I'm experimenting all the time. You know, that's what the practice room is for. You shut the door and you make believe time doesn't exist anymore. I mean, you know, you got to be out in two or three hours or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then, But in between that, you just let your mind flow. You know, uh, you know, Gertrude Stein, you know, who Gertrude Stein was great writer. Uh, she, uh, she a great writer from the early part of the 20th century. She lived in Paris. She used to invite Picasso over, Stravinsky over. She had whole walls. of pictures. Alice B. Toklas was her um, wife, or at that time, they didn't call her, her lover. And she said the same thing Stravinsky said. If you want to be a genius, you got to be able to think about nothing. And uh, so when you go into your practice rooms, you all have genius. But if you cloud your mind up with all kinds of uh, expectations, you know, if you have expectations, you sunk. Forget expectations. Nobody owes you nothing. So you go into your practice room and you just experiment. You know, you sit at the keyboard maybe, you figure out the thing you. so I just kind of what was the question?
0: Asking about multiphonics.
3: So I right, so I started playing multi <laughs> 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 I started fooling around multiphonics and I started moving around with um, multiphonics with the plunger mute man because um ever since I heard Tricky Sam and, and, and and I used to play in Thad's band with Butter Jackson, Quentin Butter Jackson. Yeah, yeah. So when you hear, when you live living with those guys and they're playing plunger blues, man, you want, but I didn't want to do that whole kind of thing with the plunger. So I started doing the multi phonics with the plunger. and It served two purposes. It made it more vocal, and it also allowed you not to, to be heard to hear the voice more than you hear the horn. Mm. And it gives it a kind of a surreal sound, you know. And uh, so I just kept practicing like that. And then because I started using it not as a gimmick. I mean, I started using it as if a violinist was using double stops or triple stops.
1: What do I do now? So we have this piece, which is on your record, Dave Taylor, bass trombone. And this is called
3: David David. David Taylor. Right.
1: (laughs) David Taylor, (laughs) bass trombone. I'm always getting turned around. And this is Moonrise with Memories, and this is the third movement of that piece?
3: This was written for me by someone. Yeah, yeah. this was written by a a guy named Frederick Zsiewski, who's becoming even more famous now. He's still alive, he's living in in, uh, London, but he asked me what kind of a piece do I want, and he knew my background. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted a piece for unspecified instruments, six unspecified instruments. So sometimes I play it with two cowbells, sometimes I play it with old clarinets, sometimes I play it with mixed instruments. I even played it with Jazz Band every now and then. I hate to say that word, but Big Band. So this one though I did with dulcimer, clarinet, E flat, trumpet and mute, violin, and I can't remember what else. Okay, so that that last, the ending is, Did Somebody Die? This The whole piece is based on a Langston Hughes poem.
2: Mm. Oh,
3: uh, what a grand time was the war. What a grand time was the war. My, oh, my, my, oh, my, 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 my What a grand time. And The big kick at the very end. What a grand time was the war. Did somebody die? You know, that kind of thing. So that's the song in the middle movement. Uh, you should show them the Eric Eweizen thing, because Eric Eweizen yeah. came up, and everybody has an impression of Eric Eweizen that I'd like to bust right
0: now.
1: All right, for sure. Yeah, that's where I was gonna go next. I'm excited. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> right.
0: okay. I just wanted to say before I go that thank you so much for coming on. Oh I'm it's honored It's been it's been a blast
3: having you on and thank you. you. Know, really I'm honored seriously. to be here man. Both you and Gina are doing a great service
0: to the community.
1: Let's hear some ways in <laughs>
2: You just, you want to play? Of
3: course. Is
1: there any sections in this in particular that you want to play? Uh, I
3: don't care. Just plunk it down somewhere. Go further in. Okay. Yeah,
2: go ahead.
1: So you said that you overdubbed this, right?
3: Yeah. Um If you make it a little lower, we could talk while it's going on Um so uh John Rojak, a Bishop ball player who plays the American Brasswood Pit, was taking lessons with me back in the day. And I, and I asked him uh, if he knew any young composers that I could found. And he said, yeah, well, there's this fellowship student, Eric in And uh, so I went and met Eric, and I heard his reel. He played me like a demo reel. And I heard something he wrote for a bunch of Kelly, and they said, give me something like that. So he wrote this piece for me, and we overdubbed it nine times. And wow. uh, the movie, though, <clears throat> the movie, um, you know, the guy who runs the Red Bull um, drink company has his headquarters, in Carlsberg, and he has a hangar there called Hangar 7. That's where Carl Heinz Stockhausen um, premieres, his helicopter pieces and stuff like that. And then he invited me to improvise in his airplane hangar. We had Mazarat, Lamborghinis, Ferraris. D-speed 9s, F-16s, helicopters, you know, and I would walk around improvising, and they made this movie in the basement of his Hangar 7 of me, and then mm. superposed of the thing, and I wanted to reuse the movie. They, they played this movie against the background of a scrim at sunset on the airplane hangar, it was magnificent, and I just walked around improvising, but I wanted to utilize the movie again, so I got permission, and I put it to just
1: wow that's awesome yeah
3: and uh but we we can get off that now well this is
1: this is the first thing that we uh we're doing that has improvising on do you want to talk about some of the other pieces that you did because one of the ones that i wanted to talk about
3: but you 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 pick the ones and i'll just go along with what you want
1: to do all right cool so at the beginning we had we talked about your what is it? David Taylor plays Dave Taylor? Or is it Dave,
3: Dave Taylor, Taylor? David Taylor?
1: Dave Taylor plays Dave Taylor. I am going David to beat Taylor. that
2: into you.
3: Dave,
1: <laughs> Taylor. <laughs> <I don't remember. laughs> Dave Taylor plays That's David it. Taylor? That's
2: me, That's okay. me too.
1: All right. All right. So, the one of the pieces that you had cuz we talked about also you were playing in Th- with Fad, you were playing with uh, you had El- experience playing in the Ellington band right. and one of these pieces in five that years, yeah, I
3: spent 5 years with Gil that was that was the
2: heavy time.
1: Yeah, this this track that I'm about to play so it's from Dave Taylor plays David Taylor and it's the fi- I believe it's the fifth track it's the blues. It's incredible because it shows
3: Did you hear it as a blues?
1: Parts of it, yeah. Because like, it started off if you don't know the title, if you don't like know what you're about to listen to, it starts off really open, the sound and the presence and the spirit of Ellington I felt like was in this. Thanks. Nice. yeah that's the whole point, right it's it's really 12 by 12 by 12 by 12 by twelve.
2: I have to
3: remember, this is a bipolar personality at the end of this win, In this setting, I mean, it stands
2: up on its own, but in this setting.
1: Yeah.
3: But in the open section, that's strictly being
1: this one, as well as um, the track Mahalia from Atomic Bomb Blues, I felt like we're both had a lot of uh, the Ellington spirit behind well,
3: it. Well, I mean, I mean, Ellington and Fields
2: are my favorite side.
3: have a prepared piano because I'm it to the sound like honky-tonk why am I yelling
1: you're yelling
3: I don't know it feels like I'm yelling
1: <laughs> 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 so I'm going to fast forward a little bit on this track right here
2: I'm hearing manic.
1: manic. So I'm gonna pause this here because I want to show want to show a different, this is the Mahalia track.
3: Right. And that was one of the tunes we did on that New Orleans Suite record. pop. <laughs> apple.
2: Oh, how Oh, yeah. oh
3: great Jack Walrath I mean you know it's interesting. can I talk about this yeah you know we're so at this point now with our education we're so perfection oriented that oftentimes we'll put out really really perfect records and so what you know mm-hmm. this record um, was a live performance I did in 1992 at a place called the knitting factory and um, it's my most flawed record but I love it <laughs> my, w- my wife and I love it and um, I try to shop it around and uh, before 2000, nobody wanted it because I deal with racial problems, uh, women uh, rights problems, and things like that on it. So nobody wanted to touch it at that time. I finally put this out by myself, and I don't give it to people because I, I, I do to musicians.
2: Because
3: mm-hmm. musicians understand what we're going for. This thing just got a review that knocked my. I mean, I've been hiding this record. This re, this record wasn't even on my website until today because. I didn't. It's it's on my heart, but um, I didn't think anybody would like it. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, and then all of a sudden, Rufus Reid, we played in this band. You know, so Rufus Reid got a hold of me and said, "Hey man, did you see this?" review that so out of the blue you know you never know man you know you you never know what's good or not you know i mean i don't even know still if it's good or not but that just goes to show you you know thad jones once told me years ago because i was very insecure when i was i mentioned it to you when i was in his band and guys would come up to me and say hey man you know you sound great and blah 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 and i would tell them no no i no i, I don't i really don't I, I did and he came up to me once after a while and he said Dugga, you got everybody dug Dugga, it's not the artist's right to burst someone's bubble when they think you played well he didn't use the word you shouldn't do it he said it's not our right to judge our performances after a performance and and i and i always remembered that but i still can't believe it but you know what i mean this took me by surprise man this was like this took me by surprise i mean i don't believe a word of it of course but (laughs) no 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 i don't i mean i mean uh, because it's just so exaggerated that he heard the record and he heard the record as contemporary music you know what i mean uh, he understood when I was trying to go back and forth between, I do a lot of Mingus on this and Gershwin and stuff. And I can only tell you that I don't, you know, if you believe the good ones, you got to believe the bad ones. You can't believe these things, but they're good for business. Yeah,
1: that's true. I
3: mean, they're good for business. And we have to think, you know what? One of the reasons I like putting up that Schubert thing, because that's almost like uh, Bordoni Rochu exercises on acid. That, you know, that thing that you heard me play that yeah. And and when I talk to trombone players, you know, I got to remind them we ain't in the Bordoni business. You know what I mean? Meaning that, hey, man, let's get out of here. Let's just play some music and take your chance. And I really took a chance on this, putting out this live concert, because it's really flawed and stuff. But you want to play something by William Grant Still? That was one of the things that, when you asked me what I want to play, I chose that. And here I'm singing kind of like a Jewish rabbi. William Grant Still wrote this, and his second wife, Verna Arvey, who was Jewish. William is African-American. His second wife was um, Jewish. And she wrote this thing It was written for a female chorus. It's called Wailing Woman. And it's about I understood You'll hear the lyrics. It's about, they rejected him because his skin was black. I understood because my nose was hooked and blah, blah, blah. I got into this crazy stuff. And I think people didn't want to buy it at that time because, but I had to put this on the record, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, 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 William Grant still was a a black, through composed, a composer and the classical, through composed tradition. And he was totally shunned by the community, really shunned. In fact, there was an opera competition in Paris, and at that time, they loaded up all these reels of american composers and somehow his opera got lost i overdubbed the voice on this on on, on, on this on this record um i overdubbed a voice and on the opera past. i, I wrote an opera about uh sappho the greek woman sappho yeah sappho, and Cat, catullus a roman poet having a lover's quarrel so my daughter and i overdubbed that all right here we go Grant Still, poem by Werner Harvey. He said they shunned him
2: because his skin was black.
3: my nose was hooked, my folk despised. That band was, a, really, was, a, was really a great band, my heart. I don't know if you know the bassist, Essiad Yeah, great bassist. Uh, Phil Haynes on drums, Steve Wilson, Patience Higgins, Andy Laster, uh, saxophones, and uh, doubling on all the clarinets and blah, blah, blah. And uh, two fantastic trumpet players, Paul Smoker, now deceased from the Free Scene, and Herb Robinson. So it was really an expressive group. And I go for expression first, man. You know, it's like, uh, it's really weird how, and I don't care what genre it is, as long as it says something, man, you know. And I don't want to, I I don't feel like a bass trombone player, you know, just, uh, we happen to be playing the bass trombone. We want to talk about two valves? Talk about two valves. You want to talk about the... Lee Pyatt's talking about I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a geek with that stuff, but it's just a timbre, man, you know, mm-hmm. just a timbre. And, and I happen to think that um, trumpets have more leeway in the sound they can get. People accept trumpet sounds from A to Z. Trombones are getting there. Bass trombones, we're still locked into, it. wow, what a big sound, what a, what a, you know what I mean, we're still locked up in that crap. And I kinda don't pay, I try not to, well I try not to, too much mind. Now this gig was at the knitting factory and they wouldn't let me do a whole show there. They only give you one set. So what I did was I talked them into starting the set real early. So I started the set at six o'clock and went to 7 38 o'clock when the next guy came in you know like and i do those things like with the pew taylor project that was done i don't know when that was done it was done in the 80s at that time it was a producer named tom jung very very advanced engineer and producer i met him in the commercial scene and i knew he had a record label dmp and i wanted to be on that record label and uh, i was going to show him my stuff, and he broke his leg and uh, he was hospitalized in minneapolis so I took my thing and I flew to Minneapolis and I hit him up in his hospital room with the broken leg. So he was kind of convinced to do this. And then Jim Pugh and I did this thing together. Jim Pew arranged that wailing woman you just heard. What do you want to do now, kid?
1: Can you elaborate a little bit more on why you don't see classical music and jazz is different and why you don't think of yourself as playing bass Ramon? Can you just talk about what you mean by that?
3: Yeah, uh, well, when I was a kid, I was the first guy in my family to graduate from high school. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, my dad was a laborer. We never had a record player in the house until I was like 16, so I had no background in, in jazz or any of that stuff. Uh, the only music I knew was old-time movies, so you know I loved Louis Armstrong. Uh, old-time movies, gangster movies and stuff like that, and R&B radio rock and roll radio uh when I went to Juilliard it mainly was because I didn't know what else to do with my life I, my brother was a cab driver so I guess I could have been a cab driver or I, I like trucks I like semis so I could have been a semi I didn't want to do that so I went to music school <laughs> instead I got into Manhattan and Juilliard and I auditioned on the Haydn trumpet concerto second movement it's a slow movement so nobody knew I couldn't read or anything really. They only knew I couldn't read when they put the sight reading part in front of me, but that's only ancillary, you know, that kind of thing. So I got in. But because I grew up with the radio, you know, back in the old days, you young people don't know about tuners. But there was a tuner on a radio. And really all you had to do was dial the tuner to the left or right. And you would hit different kinds of music. R and B would be here, rock and roll would be here, jazz would be here, classical would be there, and you go like that. And the other thing too is that um when I went to Juilliard and I finally was able to get into the theory class they had a thing called literature and Materials of music l and m I think it went one, two, three, four or one, two, three, and basically it was the study of Bach and Bach corrals a four part harmony, and that always reminded me of New Orleans for some reason you know and, that, and the harmony was kind of basic. you didn't go to six Bach wrote in the French style, the German style, the Italian style, and you got to remember, um you know now we jump on an airplane and we're there in five minutes, you know, jump on a bullet train, but back in the day, that was like. 10 days on a horseback. So those are pretty remote styles. And he was able to control all these things as styles. So I just translated that to um, those couple of things. I just translated that. And because of my approach to the instrument, wasn't really doodle tongue or non-doodle tongue. or And my sound, I I, I always felt that the integrity of, of the instrument came first. So I put the same sound wherever I went. So it was just natural for me not to fall. And it wasn't dignified to think of jazz and classical music in, Separate terms. I, I believe in the dignity of all of that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons I couldn't play in a big band, I couldn't join a regular big band and I couldn't join an orchestra. I didn't want any part of either of that. I think. Not 100% sure. But I, I, I didn't want any part of any of that. Gil Evans Band was the band I still, and, and Minster, although we're not playing that much now. So I guess Gil Evans Band was the steady band I played in the most for five years. And he, he ruined my life, Gil. I mean, when, after playing with Gil Evans, man, you never want to go back. I used to I used to be able to go on the road with a big man and come back and fit right back into the scene. Mm-hmm. But right around that time I was playing with Gil Evans, man, when you get a taste of that, you have to go your own route. That kind. Of he told me a very interesting story a uh, miles Dave, uh, miles evan 's twenty first birthday we were in Venice, and we were in a fancy restaurant and, and we were celebrating his birthday and uh, i didn 't get along with the band 's manager at that time it was an english guy, and he happened to pass my table and accidentally knocked over a glass of water on me, so I kind of knocked over a glass of water on him then he knocked and I finally just took a picture and sprayed it. And they threw, and the band got me out of the restaurant real fast because it hit the frescoes, whatever the hell they got on the wall. And I I was amazed. Gil Evans came running after me. He says, Dave, Dave, wait up. Because he was bored too. Dave, Dave, wait up. And we started walking around Venice together. And he he laid this on me, man. He said, Duke Ellington once told him, Duke Ellington told him and he told me that if you leave yourself open, you never know who's going to come along and pull your coat left. And I guess that's my philosophy. Is like, you can leave yourself open, you never know what the hell's gonna come along and most likely it'd be good. Like you guys now with this whole Corona business, you're going through, a, you're going through an amazing historic moment, game changing for your careers. And uh, this is gonna be very interesting to see. You know, the highest form is intellig- of intelligence is the ability to adapt. So now we're going to be able, now we're going to see who's going to adapt and who's not going to adapt. I know with my career, I never really protected my flanks. You know, like some people, they get, they go like this. You know, like you're thinking of an airplane, right? They're flying an airplane, and you can see the wings on either side. So you can kind of protect the left, you can protect the right. You know what I mean? You get a good gig, you want to politically protect yourself. I always thought of myself as a jet. You know, with a jet, the wings are behind you like this. Mm. So I don't protect. I can't. I can't see, I, I do some protection, but not really, man. I, I just want to go straight ahead. And I found that every 10 years or so, my career flattened out and I had to reinvent my career. And I'm kind of doing that right now. I'm reinventing my career. Can you
1: talk a little bit more about that?
3: What do you mean? What like the
1: Corona stuff happening, us having look, to adapt.
3: Who are you going to play with?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It's going to come back. It's going to come back a bit you know it, it'll take it's going to take a long time till everybody's sitting next to each other on top of each other that's going to, that's going to take a long time but to see how you got you know when, when the vietnam war came around i had an option and I, I became a school teacher for a year in a in a very bad neighborhood and that, so the army gave you a deferment some of the guys vietnam was a very rough time here in the states man. it was like, oh, terrible you know uh, i didn't want to go under any circumstance some guys wanted me to join the Marine Band, they would get me in the Marine Band, but that was a five year hitch. You know what I mean? You had to be in there for five years. And I didn't want to take a chance on that because it would have destroyed my prime networking time. Like what you're in right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Prime networking time. And people your age group. Um, so I didn't wanna I didn't wanna so I took a chance on teaching for a year two and um in the middle school. And um I think it was the right decision because I stayed here and I networked while I was teaching. I mean, I was working day and night. I still always work day and night. So you guys are going to have to figure out a way to keep your networking going. And you're going to have to figure out a way to keep your practicing going. Because for what I'm seeing for myself, I mean, I've been shut up in the house for three weeks now. I'm in an older age group, so I don't want to fuck around with you, taking a chance, you know. So I'll probably be hit. But I'm seeing even for myself, you could fall into some kind of lethargy. So I'm curious to see how your age group negotiates their way through this and believe me this is going to be it's going to be over but you can't waste a second you cannot waste a second i mean uh, you know like um art doesn't wait for anybody art just moves on you know what i'm saying and and you know what it doesn't matter if your art is good or bad as long as you're I, i used to be really really competitive thankfully, you know me me as a sweet old man, but I wasn't always a sweet old man. (laughs) I never tried to get a gig from somebody, uh, from another player. That one I never did. But whenever a gig was offered, I was there. And -hmm. I was prepared. I'm a real big believer in show up on time, be prepared, and be ready to adapt. Mm -hmm. Really big on that. And so I always warmed up. You will know, be is people who warm up. Man. I always warmed up. I was always ready for the gig. And I have a pretty good track record. You know, nobody's 100%. I, mean, I, I screwed up plenty. And that's another thing, too. I mean, I don't know how are you guys going to fail. You guys have to fail. Because if you don't fail, you're not going to be able to see your parameters. How, how do you know how far you're going to go unless you go to the edge?
2: Mm-hmm. You
3: know what I mean? So I always let myself go to the How do we get into this? Oh, yeah. So now you're going to have to find a new edge. Mm-hmm. You guys are gonna to have to find a new edge now and be ready for it when it comes back. It will come back. It's gonna come back differently, but you wanna make sure you're on the bandstand when it comes back. So what are you doing for
1: that? Me personally? What yeah. are you just saying in general?
3: In general. Give me another question. Forget that.
1: Okay. <laughs> we were talking about the distinction between jazz and classical and how you don't consider there is one. No, you Each got to movie.
3: remember, I'm not a great jazz player. I'm not a great classical player. I, I, I'm I'm kind of like floating around in there. And maybe in hindsight, somebody will say, oh, wow, that guy sounded good. That's where I'm at. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm like not, I'm not a jazz player to the jazz players. I'm not a classical player to the classical players.
1: How do, How does that make you feel? That's just me. I'm but curious. It makes
3: me feel lousy a lot. I have an ego, but it wasn't worth giving up it wasn't worth giving up who I am. you know what you need you know what everybody needs? everybody needs a good partner uh, That was one of the luckiest things in my life. I met Ronnie about five or ten years into my about five years into my career I was already doing I already had my own Broadway show when I was at Julia. At that time, we were told not to do Broadway shows, but I never listened to what anybody told me. And But then, a couple of years after that, either was my arrogance or the fact that I changed up my technique. I can't tell which one, or maybe both. I lost every job I had, every friggin' one. My old lady went back to teaching, and she said she didn't want me, she just wanted me in the house practicing because she didn't want me to have to go out and kiss anybody's butt for a job. When you get married or when you live with somebody, that's the person you want to live with. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always brought home bread for the table. That was my preoccupation when I was your age because I had a kid when I was 24, man. So, man... I don't know. Give me a question.
1: Can you talk about, I mean, everybody's aware. We like people know who Dave Taylor is. Classical bass tromonas, jazz based tromonas alike. Everybody knows who you are and we right. know things that you've celebrated. And so can you talk about some other examples of these? You really felt like you were failing? I never about, really
3: like... felt secure in any session, any place I was until maybe 20 years ago. Wow. I was always very oh, I was very insecure. Man. Until the time I was 40, man, I, I didn't talk much on gigs, contractors would say me, say something, you know, that kind of thing, you know, I I didn't talk very much. And and, and then I kind of came out of my shell, I I speak too much. I was lucky, the group of guys I hung out with, they didn't understand what I was doing. I'm talking about guys like Lou Soloff, John Fattis, Alan Rubin, Randy Brecker, that was my, that was my group, you know, Mm -hmm. Michael Brecker, Ronnie Kuber, Sanborn, uh, George Young, all these guys, these are my, these are my boys, you know. They never understood what I was doing, but they loved it that I was doing it. That's the kind of group you want to hang out with. I just lucked into those situations, man. I mean, maybe it was easier for my generation. I don't know. Uh, But every generation has its own moments. This is your generation's moment, kid. This is, um, I've never seen anything like this. I thought it was rough. When I I told you I went to Europe and recorded that record in one night, I'll never forget going to Newark Airport. This was two weeks after 9/11, having to go in between the tanks and the soldiers to get to the boarding gate and shit. Um, but this is on. Um, this is something. This is hilarious, man. If you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, and so I've seen people saying like we're living through like a big moment in history. Did you uh, know when you were living through big moments in history, uh, even <laughs> within your own career?
3: No, not even 9/11. I mean, I knew. Mean, of course, I knew 9/11 was a big moment but not like this, where I can't go outside. Well, I don't go outside anyhow. You know, for me, <laughs> for me, this isn't that big a deal because I'm in the house anyhow. <laughs> yeah. I'm in the house anyhow. You know, I'm a practicer, man. I practice all day, you know. And then now that I'm writing, for the last 10 years, I'm writing all the time. And I love being with my woman. And then what we do now, she's forcing me to, she turns on these women. They have these exercise tapes and stuff. Oh, like. yeah. So ever so I, stand in front of these pretty women in tight pants, exercising.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm making my roommate do the same with me.
3: <laughs> you know, so that's kind of fun. I yeah. mean, but I worry about people who are less fortunate than myself. Uh, this is a nightmare, man.
1: Yeah. I was thinking about how, for me at least, it feels, because I'm also pretty introverted. I stay, I stay inside unless I have like a show to go out to. Yeah. I'm realizing maybe I want to change that after all of this, but, this is home for me, you know, this, this feeling of being at home and having the time really feels like a blessing. You have a
3: goal. You have a goal. Where do you see yourself in five years? And has that changed since this?
1: Yes, a lot. I have. So so I keep... Where did
3: you see yourself in five years before this went down?
1: Well, I mean, it's changed a little bit. I really wanted to travel with my group, with my quintet. I wanted to travel with my nana a lot. And, um,
3: yeah, you told me you have a whole book and a half of that, man.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I love writing. So right. And actually, when we did that gig with Rufus Reid, just like maybe a month or two before that, I really started thinking about how I wanted to play with opening up my stuff, maybe thinking about things more through Compose. So it was like really beautiful timing to do that show, play all his music, and then you gave me that CD, and it was just... What made
3: you want to go to through Compose?
1: I feel like... Um, I just felt like it was time, you know. I I I do a lot of this. St- I lost my hard drive a couple of years ago, and I had yes, a bunch of charts, and they were yeah, very you like,
2: it,
1: right. you know, it's like standards and stuff like that. And I've always wanted to work on through compose stuff, and I just never had the confidence. And I think one day I was just like, I, I don't care. Like even if it comes out bad, I'm gonna try at least because then if I write ten bad things, maybe one of the things is okay at least. That's my and one okay thing. But
3: so now, how did that change?
1: Well so I a lot of the stuff had planned on you know I had like little goals set up like I had to put together an EPK for my group and I had to do performance and stuff to set up for the touring because when you go touring you need this stuff you need like recordings of the band and you need like bio for the members and you need kind of like an established I wanted to get like a regular playing gig with the non-net and I had like goals set up up until that but Everything just stopped, all the clubs are closed, you know, we don't even know when they're gonna start again. So it's it's almost like I'm writing like as if I still intend to do the shows, but the actual recordings won't be there and the physical material that I need to submit to get the gigs isn't gonna be there. I didn't
3: think your I didn't think your age group carried around physical <coughs> material.
1: Well, not physical like CDs, an EPK, you know, like the press kit is going to have all those materials and I'm not going to be able to get live video of the band playing if there's no live show of the band playing. So it's changed in that sense. I don't know if my five year plan has changed, but the plan I had this one year leading into that five years has changed a lot. So now I'm trying to think of like how I'm going to, we're doing some virtual recordings and stuff like that. And I'm writing every week. I try to write a piece, whether it comes out crap or not, I'm going to write it. You know, at least I'll have something. It informs something I write later, trying to just do that and trying to practice the tunes in a way that I haven't had a chance to do. I don't think ever in my- anybody
3: bother you in your apartment when you practice? I mean, no
1: no i'm very like my landlord is always telling me open the window so we can hear you i'm like i "I don't want to to hear my two belong tones this is
3: no that's that's a lucky break. I feel that way here too. I could practice here all
1: yeah.
3: the time. How do we How do we proceed from here? Uh, I just want maybe play something that's impressive for the people. So you know, I could play the trombone. With.
1: Okay. All right. Let me. Look. I don't think me and you have the same idea of what's impressive or not. Because when I see stuff in it, to me, it's like crazy give impressive. Stuff.
3: Give me some stuff you have, and give me a dealer's choice.
1: We have shtick.
3: Do shtick. You know why? Because um, I'm I love stand up. Uh, okay. I totally love stand up. And I even, um, I mean, Lenny Bruce to me. So a composer friend of mine wrote a piece for me called Shtick. His name is David Schiff. He uses, uh, you're supposed to issue a disclaimer here.
1: Yes, that's right. So Be warned. There's some right.
3: so explicit Lenny Bruce, material. Lenny, Lenny Bruce had a routine, that I think one of the routines, that threw him in jail, and it was to come. To is a preposition, come is a verb. And the whole piece is based on me doing Lenny Bruce's to come. That's like a septet, quintet, stuff like that. Um, I played this at a very important concert with Steve Reich and all these guys and WNYC radio broadcast it, but they issued a disclaimer. So that's why maybe I thought you should issue the disclaimer. Mm-hmm. But here it is. And then maybe we could talk a second about it and we can kiss everybody goodnight.
1: Okay, here we go. This is Stick from Where, this is the end of the
3: trumpet, end of the trumpet solo before my solo?
1: Right. Yep. Okay. Got it queued up for you.
2: Bye. Yeah.
3: It's been like a big drum solo,
2: folks. Oh, don't come at me! Don't come at me! you wanna kill me!
3: Don't ask me, I can't come. You don't love me. I love you, but I just can't come when I'm loaded. If anyone in this room finds that verb intransitive obscene, vile, vulgar if it's really a hang-up to hear it and you think I'm the rankest for saying it, you probably can't come. You got to remember, I'm a very dignified man, but every now and then I like a good joke. (laughs) What do you make
1: of that? kind of demands your attention. Listen to what's happening. I loved that ending. I would, like, listen to the whole track again just to get to that ending.
3: I'm very fortunate that uh, geniuses don't mind me hanging around. So I get like great music from guys. I think the reason is that, I don't know what the reason is. I'm very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. Oh, that's what I want to tell you guys too. Um, This is the right place. You know that, right?
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Because it's the place now. So this is the right place. Now you have to figure out how to develop it. I empathize with, with you guys. Everything is going to be okay it's going to be a new okay, things will be different, and the most intelligent of you will adapt, because that's what intelligence is, the ability to adapt. Hey, you know what, putting up with my crap, you're lovely, I always dug you, and now I know why.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have one last question to tie this up before we end, that I'm also curious about, And Eric asked, he wants to know what's the, uh, why you distinguish between David Taylor and Dave Taylor?
3: It was just funny and I did not want to take myself seriously. I mean, um, I mean, I wrote this, the record is through composed. I mean, a couple of improvisatory spots, but I really wrote it as a through composed CD, um, concerto style, because each one of these pieces is a concertina. One of them is with string orchestra, one of them with a, a big band, a, a big uh, wind orchestra. But I, I, I wanted to make the record on my own. I couldn't afford to hire those groups, so I put them in little groups. And I just don't want to take myself serious. Once you start taking yourself seriously, man, it's over. You know, it's all a game. Dave Taylor plays the music of Dave, you know, that kind of crap. I'm sitting in the middle of the room. Yeah, I'm going to take yourself too seriously. It's all fun. Oh, Anton Chekhov, the great playwright. I mean, this guy is a great, 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 great. Give me a second. I'm going to find this. Great, great,
1: great, great, great.
3: Do silly things foolishness is a great deal more vital and healthy than our straining and striving after a meaningful life. Mm -hmm. Do silly things. Foolishness is a great deal more vital and healthy than our straining and striving after a meaningful life. So I guess that's what I and it took me a long time to realize that, man. But that, that's what it's about. I mean, that's Anton, the check one. them. You got to check them out. Three Sisters, yeah. The Seagull. has been extremely... Also, you guys got to go stuck on the art museums because there's harmony and melody in color and painting. Put restrictions on yourselves. A novelist has restrictions. Composers, when they're doing a song form, doing a blues form, uh, doing a sonata allegro form, symphonic form... There's restrictions. A painter, he's in his frame. So look for the people who paint outside the frame. There's a guy named Frank Stella, S-T-E-L-L-A, now deceased. He used to make frames of different shapes to go along with his painting. Goes outside that. Those are the cats. I, I think we're too, too inhibited in our education. I think the reason I was able to succeed was I learned the, if I have succeeded, I, I learned the, oh shit, I'm getting so fucking pompous. All right, give me a break, I'll do this. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I learned the I learned the Ivory Tower handbook and I learned the street handbook. So I know how to I have one foot in heaven, maybe, and one foot in a gutter. Yeah, man. Let's end it on that.
1: Yeah. I, that's love, a you, good. I
3: love you for having me here, man. Really Thank good. you
1: so much for doing this with us.
3: Oh man. I'm sucking the house anyway, right?
1: Right right. So this is the place to be Avb VB on Wednesdays to so hear stories like yours. Thank yeah. you so much for your time um and thanks to everybody for watching we've had a lot of i mean everybody commenting watching we appreciate you this is awesome i mean
3: what are the everybody best, loves bass drum what, what is the best comments or what are the worst comments
1: the worst comment is lol no i'm just kidding <laughs> i don't know what the worst <laughs> comments are but all they're right. really good a lot of the questions we asked were from the comments today oh okay. so thank you're, you guys for asking live that's awesome we appreciate that thank right. you, And I, Taylor, hope, I hope i hope meeting. we all meet
3: each other somewhere down the line
1: mm-hmm I hope so too. Next week, we're going to be doing at the same time, and the lovely Jennifer Wharton will be joining us. So, if you liked it this week, next week we have Jennifer Wharton. Well, she has
3: a sense of humor.
1: She does have the sense of humor.
3: She has a sense of humor. Yeah. All right, kid. Goodbye. All right.
1: Bye, guys.